Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Dara here. I think we're on the uh, countdown to the end of Off the Menu. I think we're going to turn this into a beer show uh, going into the future. So in January... Um, yeah, I think that's what I think that's what we're gonna do. I don't know. I love doing the food show. I also love beer, so it's a win-win for me. Um, guess what is happening today? We are going to have the greatest Wisconsin beer radio show in the history of Wisconsin beer radio shows, which is a long history because a lot has been happening. In Wisconsin with beer for, yay, these 150 years. And the person who knows all of it put it all into a book. Doug Hoverson is here. Doug, is that how you even pronounce your name? Yes, he is. I should hope so. (laughs) Doug Hoverson and I were chatting. You guys, you have never seen a Wisconsin beer book like the Wisconsin beer book that Doug Hoverson made. It is 1,000 pounds. Is it 1,000? Well, it's about six and a half. It's a six and a half pounds. <laughs> One of my friends calculated that it was the same weight as about 550 cheese curds. <laughs> That's how we should measure things. Uh, big, honking, beautiful. If you like Breweriana, if you like all the cool you know, labels and posters and goats and all the things that have been part of the Wisconsin beer story, if you're looking for present for the Wisconsin beer drinker in your life. I mean, this is just the thing. We're going to talk all about this. Uh, And then we're going to devote this show to just talking about beer in Wisconsin. And I know that a bunch of you worked in breweries, that you have relatives that worked in breweries. I want to open this show up and to to all of you. So the call in line, 651-989- 9226. Do you want to share some family anecdotes, what memories? Anybody want to talk about what they remember growing up in the universe of Wisconsin beer? Anyone actually work in a Wisconsin brewery? 651-989-9226. All right, Doug Hoverson, tell the people, did you literally spend 4,000 years in a cave creating this book? How did this book come to be? Well, this book is actually a spin-off of my fr- first book, The Land of Amber Waters, about Minnesota breweries. And my editors asked me if I wanted to take on Wisconsin. I at first said, are you crazy? This book could take at least <laughs> 10 years, and it could be five or 600 pages. So it ended up taking 11 years and went 700 and some pages. But it was a really fun challenge because, in a lot of ways, Wisconsin was really the center of the beer universe not just the big ones in Milwaukee, but all of the little small breweries that were scattered throughout the state that really became such an important part of the local culture. And it's a, it is a very long history. Where do you pin the beginning? What is the, the you know, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Beer of Wisconsin? Where did it start? 
Well, a lot of people would expect it to be Milwaukee or Green Bay, but it was actually the John Phillips Brewery in Mineral Point down in the southwestern part of the state. I love Mineral Point. It's the sweetest little town right it's, on the river there. It's such a neat little town with all those great stone buildings. But that was one of the first areas of settlement because it was part of the lead mining boom. And you had a lot of Welsh and Cornish miners there. And they really didn't want to be without their ale for that long. I do not want to mine lead without a beer myself. I I think that's totally understandable. And so John Phillips started up there in 1835. And he kept going probably until the 1850s. And then others took over in Mineral Point for him. 1830s. That's when... Uh, roads were rivers, right? That's how you got around. You got around by river? They were using a lot of river transportation, and they were just starting to put roads in where they could. There were a lot of really just military trails at that point. And, in fact, you know, there still were just a lot of plank roads in some places. Wisconsin wasn't even a state at this point. It was still just a territory. A territory with beer, which is what... Uh... <laughs> The best kind of territory, I imagine. Dry territories would have been tedious. Uh, okay, so that started all in Mineral Point, Wisconsin, and and did the beer did the beer culture grow up kind of simultaneously with the it becoming more populated and statehood and all those good things? Well, it really did because what happens in the 1840s is you get the beginning of the mass migrations of the Germans into the Upper Midwest. And they started to settle in Milwaukee and many of the other cities along Lake Michigan. And in 1840 or 41, the first German brewer gets going in Milwaukee. And, of course, the water, the transportation, the population, and the critical mass of other Germans to work in the breweries was part of what set them on their path to world domination. All right. So you are in your real life, also a teacher of history. So let's get into, I'm very interested in uh, this right now. I've realized that so many people in Minnesota and Wisconsin have German heritage, but maybe also aren't totally aware of why so many Germans are here and kind of how they, how they got here. So let's say in the, I didn't realize this, but um, Germany was only became the thing that we know today as Germany, I think it was 1871. So before then, it was the Napoleonic Wars. It was shifting borders. It was, you know, conflict with Russia and, and German peasants living in Russian land as farmers and then getting kicked off. Like all kinds of things were happening. Germany. Right. Um, Germany was really kind of a patchwork of a whole bunch of different little city states when Napoleon got through, he decided it was just too complex to administrate. And he took what was originally about 350 different German states in an area about the size of Minnesota and cut that down to about 20-some. And these were Bavaria and Prussia and a lot of the things that those early German immigrants listed as their homeland rather than Germany, which wasn't really a term at the time. I know. That's so interesting. I was trying to figure this out for an unrelated magazine project that's coming out in January, and I could not put my finger on the number of Germans that came to Minnesota. And then I started to unravel why. And it's it's such, such a complicated story. Uh, sidebar, 
Napoleon. <laughs> Napoleon comes up a lot in my life recently. He was also the one who looked at uh, French wine and was like, this is too complicated. You people organize yourselves right now. And we use those classifications to this day. I mean, so I like I like Napoleon's just like, you're not organized. You're not organized. And then 200 years later, we're, we're all still handling it. <laughs> well, Napoleon was also the one who, when traveling through Berlin, tasted their Berliner Weiss-style beers and called it the Champagne of the North. No way! Are you kidding me? We have that. We're dealing with the champagne of beers to this day. That's that's a Napoleon thing? Well, of course, uh, Miller changed it and made a light American lager the champagne of beers rather than the Berliner Weiss style. But the terminology certainly stays. I like everything about this. We'll just talk about Napoleon. It's the unexpected Napoleon hour here. (laughs) My last Napoleon trivia when it comes to beer and wine is that the kind of famous coupe glass, you know, that uh, more flat champagne glass, you see the tall one that's a flute and then the kind of flattish one, that, the legend behind it, was developed by Napoleon and it reminded him of Josephine, his Paramore, and uh, I'll let you fill in why it reminded him of uh, reminded him of her. Um, and so those glasses still exist. So Napoleon is in your he's the ghost in our machine. That's <laughs> he was probably on the grassy knoll too. Which is <laughs> well, he was probably short. No one could see him. All right, so uh, Napoleon messed up Germany, shall we say, which wasn't yet Germany, and. Just, send a whole lot of people this way. They happened to settle in Wisconsin and then they got there and what was the general logic was just like, we miss beer or was it this water is so fantastic we can make great beer? What what was it? Well, it was really some of each. And one of the things that distinguished the Germans from a lot of the other immigrant groups was many of them came with some money. And some of the Germans didn't necessarily trust this new land, so they also brought a lot of equipment with them because they didn't think they'd be able to buy good stuff in this new frontier area. So they arrived in Wisconsin, and some of them, of course, were brewers to begin with, and they wanted to ply their trade when they got here. And they discovered really good water that was filtered by limestone and sandstone, so it had good mineral content as well. They found land that was great for growing barley, and they also found land that where hops grew really well, and the hops were such an incredibly important part of making distinctive beers. And hops, of course. Longtime listeners of this show know that I've been on the hops bandwagon a long time, so that's a, a little vine that grows up 20 feet tall. It's actually a vine, but that doesn't matter. And it uh, makes these little kind of soft pine cones that have resinous qualities that are also preservatives. So if you want beer to last a long time, uh, then you have to use hops. And that's, uh, uh, they used to be, Wisconsin used to be the biggest hops producing region in the country before Oregon and Washington came and stole all the thunder. Uh, and so they found that the land could grow hops. The water was fantastic. And that's the, that's the genesis. And part of it was also simply the fact that the Germans who ended up in Wisconsin and some of the ones in Minnesota as well had a great sense of entrepreneurship. They had to actually know how to run a business. And a couple of the first ones didn't. They ended up having to sell out because they were poor managers. But some of the ones that followed them, like 
Fred Pabst and Frederick Miller, Val Blatz were really great at marketing their product and themselves. And so they became worldwide names, really. And what do you consider, what are the, the big ones? What are the big Wisconsin beers? So historically, of course, looking at the Milwaukee brewers, there were Pabst and Schlitz and Miller and Blatz. But back in the 19th century, there were a few others that really deserved to be in that list. Franz Falk had a great brewery. Um, today, the company is now making machine parts. But the... People in Milwaukee actually generally preferred Falk's beer, according to the accounts we have from the time. Interesting. And so when – I don't know exactly. Let's talk about the other the other big trend in the culture. Uh, so you say in your book, very interesting, is that sort of before the Civil War, there were kind of two opposing forces in Wisconsin. Uh, there was a desire to make and market and drink beer and the desire to prevent the making, marketing, and drinking of beer. The temperance movement was big. Right. It definitely was. And a number of people had observed the conditions of drunkenness on the frontiers, in the cities. It was harming families. It was harming harming labor productivity. And so the idea of America's binge drinking culture was really causing some harm, and the answer that the progressives and temperance people were thinking of at the time was at minimum try and cut down the drinking by getting people to take temperance pledges and having really high license fees for the saloons. And if that didn't work, have state laws or local ordinances simply banning the sale and consumption. Complicated, complicated world. And then that uh, went for it. All right, we're going to take a little break here, pay some bills. Uh, We're going to come back. If you have... Wisconsin brewing questions or memories, call 651-989-9226. And we'll be back with Doug Hoverson and his amazing, amazing encyclopedia, The Drink That Made Wisconsin Famous. Dara here. When I'm not writing at Minneapolis-St. Paul magazine, I am enjoying a beer right this very second with Doug Hoverson, who wrote this encyclopedia about beer, the drink that made Wisconsin famous. Doug, I should let the people know you have a couple of events, including an an opportunity to get this book and get it signed tomorrow, right? Yes, I'll be at Makers and Quinn Bookstore on Hennepin Avenue tomorrow from 1 to 3. I will also be at Hop and Barrel Brewery in Hudson, Wisconsin tonight from 5 to 7. Oh, tonight. Tonight. Um, It does end at 7, so all of the Badger fans that want to watch the Badger-Ohio State football game will have plenty of time. Hudson is a great, great little city. I love to spend time. I guess town. Town is the appropriate word. Lovely, lovely little town right across the border where it's actually Wisconsin beer. I have so many questions, but I do want to just talk about some of these these big, big companies. You said Milwaukee Brewers before, and my brain went, chook, chook, like, because that's two things. That's uh, both a number of people that brew beer and a uh, baseball team. Right. So Milwaukee itself is, a, is a, just a whole other thing, right? Well, it is. It really deserved a book of its own, but I thought it would also work better in context with the entire state here, too. So why? Why is Milwaukee? So what are the two things? What made Milwaukee special and kind of how did that come about? Those are two questions, sort of. Why? What? What's the deal with Milwaukee? Well, I think part of it was just the luck of having the right people in the city at the right time with the right resources. Because 
logic would have suggested that Chicago really should have been the brewing center of the upper Midwest. It had more rail connections. It had more shipping. But Chicago seemed to be a little bit more fragmented in the pre-Prohibition eras. And, of course, the fire took out a number of the breweries in the 1870s. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. But I think more of it was just the people in the Milwaukee breweries because – Philip Best and then his son-in-law, Fred Pabst, were geniuses at marketing and Val Blatz as well. We don't hear as much about Blatz Brewing anymore because Miller has really stepped into that position as the dominant name in Milwaukee Brewing. But Blatz was a big name, again, before Prohibition. And they were just great at marketing. And the Milwaukee Brewers, the Brewers, not the baseball team, had – a, a relatively smaller home market, so they had to export more to sell all the beer they were making. So they were very early about moving their beer into Chicago, into the Twin Cities, and they started shipping all the way down to New Orleans and to New York, and they found a market and then started shipping all over the world. And so did being on the river, was that part, I mean the river, the lake, being on the lake, was that part of that? The lake was part of that because it certainly made it easier to get beer down to Chicago, at least during the months when shipping was there. But in a lot of ways, a lot of the railroads in Wisconsin grew up to serve the industries in Milwaukee. And, of course, one of those was beer. All right. I know a lot of, uh, you know, Silicon Valley of food people and uh, listen to the show, as well as ad people, packaging people. Uh, You say in the book that Wisconsin doesn't get as much credit as it should for kind of uh, putting some fertilizer in the or, you know, some seeds of foundational American uh, food and beer advertising. Well, they should get more credit because there was a lot of innovation there and advertising wasn't that important in the earliest days around the Civil War era. You were going to drink beer at the local place, and it didn't really matter what kind. They probably only had one kind of beer. But in the 1870s, bottled beer starts to become much more important, especially if you're shipping it. And first of all, the bottles themselves become advertisements with their printed labels. But because you're competing in other markets, you have to start creating an image around your beer one of fellowship, one of friendship, one of health. And a lot of the great posters and trays and signs tried to convey that sense of gemütlichkeit that was so famous in Milwaukee. I just love that word. It makes me smile. Um, And speaking of uh, beers and brews and labels, we were talking uh, in the the green room. I'm trying to open the book and just count how many pages it is. It's like 750 pages. And you said that you got a lot of this from – uh, or not a lot of it, but some significant part from just individual beer collectors, like people who have been trying to, you know, flesh out, find out the details in the things in their collection. And that's how you came up with some of these amazing labels. And Right. I had a great amount of help from the Breweriana collectors of the upper Midwest. And without them, this book wouldn't any, be anywhere near as attractive to the eye as it is. And they were very generous to me and my great photographer, Bob Foch, And we got some great pictures of signs and labels. And some of them are ones that will be familiar to a lot of people. You know, there's some of the standard special export items of the 70s. But there's also some things in here that are really one of a kind. And you probably wouldn't see them anywhere else except in this book 
or some of these people's houses. I like just seeing some of the stuff, like the you know can with sort of a, an early can with a kind of a funnel top. It looks really right. It looks like a brake fluid can almost. Yeah, <laughs> it's just really, uh, it's just so interesting. Okay, so then did Wisconsin? Now we should talk about the fact that we actually you brought a beer, the Napoleon's uh, famous uh, champagne of beers. Why don't you tell me what you brought? And I want to quiz you about styles of beer in Wisconsin. What became better in Wisconsin? Then it would be what are the you know what's signature about Wisconsin? But what did you bring? Well, the first one that we're enjoying right now is a New Glarus product, and it's their Berliner Apfel. And New Glarus, of course, has become famous throughout the country for their spotted cow beer, but they also take a lot of pride in their sour beers. And they won an international award many years ago for their Wisconsin Belgian Red, which is a cherry beer. And they have diversified into a lot of other fruit beers in addition to continuing to make Spotted Cow and several others. So this is a beer that's almost a cross between a beer and a cider. It has some apple character to it, but it is still definitely carbonated like a beer and has that barley base to it. I was talking to uh, Tyson Schnitker, who runs... Uh, Skolvin, the Aquavit company, and he he went to Tokyo to visit friends and brought a whole suitcase full of New Glarus. So it is indeed <laughs> world famous. Yeah, there throughout the Upper Midwest, and I'd like to include Minnesota in this too. There are a number of beers that you can definitely bring to your friends in far flung parts of the country or world, and they will be most welcomed gifts. Yeah, I have a friend, another friend who has a kid who was in college at the University of Vermont, and a big. Every time she would visit her kid, she'd pack her suitcase full of uh, different beers from here to trade for uh, little small brewery beers out there. That's a right, and uh, some of that even goes back to the 1960s and 70s when Wisconsin was one of the few states to still have some of those small town breweries. So if people were going hunting and fishing in northern Wisconsin or traveling through for some other reason. They'd pick up a few extra cases of Point Special or something like that because Point was only available about 35 miles from Stevens Point. So as the slogan went, if you were out of Point, you were out of town. <laughs> uh, okay, so what about beer styles? Are there beer styles that you feel the Wisconsin elevated or, you know, kind of they are the key or the core of Wisconsin? For so many years, Wisconsin has been famous as a lager brewing state. And for some of the listeners, the main difference between a lager and an ale is the different type of yeast. And the lager tends to work better at cooler conditions and have a much cleaner beer flavor. That's like the classic American, it, so you know. All of the, the vast majority of beer sold in the world is some sort of light lager. And that was the predominant style. But I was really surprised that even back in the 19th century, there were a lot of different styles. There were many dark beers available. Even though Wisconsin was a really a German lager state, there were still some breweries making porters and pale ales at the time. If there had been no Wisconsin, would lager be the worldwide dominant beer? I think it still would have been because it had already made real inroads in New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Missouri – all of which were important brewing states, as well, of course, as in Germany and the Czech Republic. So oh, them. It was, <laughs> it was already taking over Europe by storm. 
All right. So Lager, regardless of whether Wisconsin had gone in the mix. So there is nothing finer than a good lager and some cheese curds. Uh, okay. And so you feel like lager is obviously the big, that's the big kahuna. That's the thing that dominated Wisconsin. Well, it really is. And one of the other indications there is when Wisconsin first started to have their craft brewing boom in the 1980s, the early brewers made lager beers instead of ales. And for for example, Minnesota, when Mark Studrud starts at Summit, he's making ale styles. A lot of the West Coast and Colorado breweries were making ales because they were more forgiving. It took less time so you could run them through earlier. But Sprecher and New Glarus and Capital and many of the other early Wisconsin breweries started with lagers rather than ales, which really makes them an outlier. And then – and I feel like um, – what's the other – what would you say if you had to pick a, a number two or, or even a two and three? What are the other Wisconsin beer styles? Wisconsin has really diversified in a way. I would have said that for a while Minnesota was a little ahead of them in styles. But um, Wisconsin has several breweries that have really important barrel aging programs. Wisconsin has several breweries. They're starting to get very heavily into sour beers. So I think – that any trip to a Wisconsin liquor store or in Wisconsin gas station will show a whole variety of the, the types of beers that are available from modern craft brewers. I don't know if they have really a, a second number two style. I think there's plenty of India Pale Ales out there, and there's certainly some great examples of those from Wisconsin too. Because I feel like in Twin Cities we have at this point our own – IPA style, right? There's a Minnesota IPA, which is a kind of like a surly, which goes. It's it's got everything. It's got malt. It's got it's got body, and it's got all the IPA bitterness. Right. I think the the so-called Minnesota Twin Cities IPA style does have more caramely malt base to it. It's not just a citrus hop showcase like some of the so-called West Coast IPAs would be. But Wisconsin doesn't do this. We've got our own thing here in the Twin Cities, and we get to go to Wisconsin and get things and put them in the car and bring them to our barbecues. So we we live we live large. All right, I'm going to take a little break here. We're going to come back. This will be your last chance to ask Doug Hoverson anything unless you go to Hudson, Wisconsin tonight. Then you can ask him some things. Or Majors and Quinn tomorrow. So call in or text if you want, 651-989-9226. All about Wisconsin beer on the show today. All right, we are wrapping up our Wisconsin Beer Power Hour. Getting all the facts. I've got Doug Hoverson here. If you buy one book about Wisconsin beer in this lifetime, it better be Doug Hoverson's book. It, it eclipses all the other books. They got a Godzilla foot smushing down every Wisconsin beer book that has ever been written. This is the dominator. I mean, honestly, it's 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 a pricey book because it's huge. But really, for the amount of information in here... It's a bargain. It's, it's 800 and about 8,700 words per dollar. <laughs> 8,700 words per dollar. You're not going to get a bigger bargain in books about Wisconsin beer this lifetime. Get in on the ground floor now. So Doug will be at Majors and Quinn tomorrow. He will be in Hudson, Wisconsin tonight from 5 to 7. Hop and barrel. Hop and barrel. All right. So you brought one more dark, dark, midnight dark stout. I did, and this is from Central Waters Brewing in Amherst, which is up by Stevens Point, and it's their rye barrel-aged imperial stout. So this is a 
very deep, very desserty beer almost. This is one that goes well in a snifter in front of a fireplace. And Central Waters has had one of the most impressive barrel aging programs in the country for many years. But they're also noteworthy because they've done a lot of work with solar power in their brewery and being as sustainable as they can in their use of water and other resources. And I think that's one of the really neat things about today's craft brewers because they're trying to make a otherwise water and energy intensive business one that's in keeping with their values of conservation and care. The 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 very deep, deep, dark, dark Wisconsin stout. That has become a thing. I don't know. Imperial stouts are kind of big in the Twin Cities, but they are just a they are just a phenomena. People love them. They are, and they're a great beer to have one of. And I think that's <laughs> yeah. one of the one of the neat things about where beer is going today is the craft brewers are helping to take the beer culture from the binge drinking, seeing if you can try and finish an entire case of beer, to having a beer or two that you can remember and enjoy in a relaxed way. All right. That perfectly segues to our last thing we're going to say about Wisconsin beer, the future. What is the future of Wisconsin beer? What will it look like, Doug Overson? You've seen all the past from before Wisconsin was a state till now. Well, I think we're still in a wave of expansion, and I think that'll go for a while because there are a lot of small towns that either haven't had a brewery for many years or, in fact, never had a brewery, but where there are some local residents who want to start a business and make it a gathering place for the neighborhood. And there are a lot of these up in the cabin country now where people can go in and sit down with the other people from the area and have a beer and talk to the person who made it. So I think it's going to be difficult to have a lot of breweries that want to make it into that next tier where they're distributing throughout the upper Midwest and they've got their bottles on every shelf because there's only so many tap lines available and only so much space on the stores. But there's a lot of room for breweries that really just want to be a place for their community to gather and Talk Is this to putting somebody. us back in the 19th century model if we're going to go back to the way it was in 1860? Well, it really is. And the ability to just sit down and talk with the person who made your beer is really part of what makes the craft brewing story interesting. And I think it's very appealing to a lot of people. And we've got that same number. We have more breweries now than we did in the 1870s, in fact. And I think it's kind of fun how you've got the variety. There's the big ones, there's the small ones, but you know it's worth going to a different town to have a different beer. That's worth it to me. All right, this has been super fun. I've been talking to Doug Hoverson, his new book, "The Drink That Made Wisconsin Famous." You, if you got a big old Wisconsin beer lover in your life, you need to get him this big old book. It is a masterpiece. Doug, I am very impressed. Thank you for coming in and talking to us. Well, thank you, Derek. It's been a great pleasure. That's been fun. All right, we're going to come back. We're going to check in with Tim McKee. It's the first winter market happening on the Market House in St. Paul, that building that's on the side of the St. Paul Farmer's Market. We'll get a little check-in. What's going on there? Dara here. All right, we're checking in with one of the most esteemed legendary chefs of the Twin Cities, Tim McKee, who owns Octo Fish Bar. The north side of, uh, I think of it as the St. Paul Farmer's Market adjacent. You know the St. Paul Farmer's Market, big old train shed, our historic landmark. 
Octo Fish Bar and Market House is on the north side of it, and they're doing their first indoor market of the season. Tim McKee, how's it going? It's going really great. Yeah, give me a give me a description. What's it like over there right now? Oh, there's all kinds of vendors downstairs uh, in in Market House uh, selling great things, uh, and up upstairs we're doing uh, brunch out of Octo, and uh, Ben Spangler from Baby Zito is doing an ice cream pop up with a bunch of holiday flavors. Uh, Rachel Anderson from Vikings and Goddesses is doing uh, a pie pop up, pies by the slice, whole pies, and uh, we've got. Uh, Tim McDonald, probably one of the most knowledgeable uh, people in town about oysters, is shucking oysters from the fish guys. So a lot of lot of things are happening. Did I hear that there's a bargain on oysters? Two dollars. Two bucks a two bucks a pop, and not $2 bad $2 for a bivalve. Oysters, right? <laughs> All right. So this is kind of a little pre-holiday market. People are buying stuff to tuck away is that the general idea yeah yeah there's uh and you know buy what you want for dinner we've got uh, r&r cultivators uh down in the market uh growing mushrooms out of roseville minnesota uh i'm sure alex could uh set you up with some great fish to cook along with it and uh, you can make a meal of it i would do that and so if people don't know almanac fish is over there that's one of the leading you know kind of Greatest cutting edge, all the freshest stuff from the fish guys is in there. And then you have a local beef producer. So it's a, it's a great place to shop. If people have never been over to Market House, it's a great way to just buy uh, the best of the best, one stop, and possibly visit with Tim McKee, who seems to be there right now. So. <laughs> right. And everybody behind the counter has been uh, a chef at one time, if they're not still, and they can, uh, they can help you uh, – figure out the best meal with whatever you buy out of the case. All right. And so you said to me before that you're just going to do these a little more spontaneously this year. So if people want to get down there, they should go for the next two hours. It is not going to be every weekend. It's going to be now and then, right? Well, the market is every weekend. Uh, we uh, we try to have something going on all the time, but, uh, you know, there's always uh, brunch. and. Oh, wait. And, the market uh, is every weekend? Every weekend. Oh, I thought yeah, you said every, it wasn't. Every Saturday. Uh, well, the pop-ups are, are uh, not every Saturday. They oh. happen a lot. Next week, we have El Norte uh, doing their burritos they, they're always and their concha burgers. They're always uh, really popular. All right, um, so that's a good thing for people to do. Minnesotans are habitual. We like to have a habit. So the yeah. habit for the next couple months is going to be go by the indoor market at Market House on Saturdays. And, and then have brunch at Octo Fish Bar. All right, that works for me. Uh, thank you. Thank you, chef. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. So that's the whole almanac fish market house meets market house collaborative space. That's at the, on the North side, on the edge of the farmer's market. If you're used to the St. Paul farmer's market, just look around the edges. You will see it. Um, and so that's what's going on up there. All right. So what else is going on? I got a, a nice text saying that people are more interested in food than beer, if we're going to transition this to a beer show, well, you know, raise a ruckus. I love talking about food. That's been my passion of mine for a long time. Um, But love beer, too. So that's what we're going to do next week. We're going to have a good old traditional Minnesota visit. 
Good old Chef Jack Rebel from the Lex is going to come in. I bet you have followed uh, the saga. I wrote about it. He's He had a terrible cancer diagnosis, but things are really looking up, and I know oh, has a lot of fans. We're going to check in with him. We will have Baker and Miller Steve Horton from Northeast Bakersfield doing so much to advance the cause of appreciating local flour. All right, so till then, I got some homework for you. I want you to call your friends, check in on your friends, and make sure that they are surviving this pre-holiday madness well. It is such a busy time of year. Maybe you need to have a cookie and a cup of tea with a friend. So check in on each other. That's my homework for you. This crazy world, check in on your friends. I want you all to take care of each other. And then meet me here next week on Off the Menu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.